Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property. I'm Peter Switzer and on this week's show, Doomsday Merchant Professor Steve Keane is not as negative on Australian house prices and its outlook as you might expect. His change of attitude is worth listening to. Then AMP Capital's senior economist Diana Messina says the economic indicators are all adding up to nice rises in house prices in 2021. And then Pete Wargent from buyersbuyers.com.au with all of the data that's coming to his website, he's saying there's a big boom coming in 2021. I'm Peter Switzer, let's go and check out Steve Keen right now, all the way from Thailand. Joining me now is Professor Steve Keane, who nowadays is based in Thailand, but uh, it doesn't change his perceptions on what he's seeing in places like the Australian economy. I do want to talk to him about what he's seeing in the Australian housing sector. Steve, great to see you. Good to see you too, Matt. All right, so it's been an unbelievable year. You would recall even the Commonwealth Bank thinking that there was a possibility that Australian house prices would fall by 30%. I, I, I think I... When I did talk to you last time, you weren't as negative as you have been in the past about the outlook for Australian house prices. Just try and recap on what you were expecting when you saw you know, the worst of the coronavirus come to town and then when you started seeing things like the rescue program that was put in place by the federal government and the state governments. Oh, well, one thing the last 15 years has taught me is that the, uh, the, the most important thing to the Australian government is the Australian housing bubble. Hmm. They'll dive in and rescue it in any way they possibly can. Uh, but the other side of it was that it was pretty apparent very rapidly that China was going to get on top of the coronavirus, that Canada wasn't and Australia was. Hmm. And I thought uh, that, that means that, you know, that initially there'll be a, a real hit to the foreign buying pressure, which is a large part of what kept the, the market up. And of course, you're going to have a potentially a permanent hit to the Airbnb world. Hmm. Uh, but when, when the dust settles from coronavirus, Australia and China were going to be free of it and the Chinese buying pressure was going to come back uh, big time, I think, ultimately, uh, because Canada's off the, off the menu. Mm. Any, any rich Chinese who want to get their money out of China aren't going to do it in Canada until the virus is under control. And uh, Australia, having it in, by a vaccine, that means at least one or two years away. So that's going to be a big boost to the Australian economy on top of the government pumping up the market again. Yeah. So. So even though you've always warned about the very high level of private household debt to GDP, which you thought, you thought eventually will bring some kind of day of reckoning for house prices in Australia, you're not expecting it to happen in 2021? No. No, I mean, there's even likely a boom in Australian house prices, relatively, uh, because you, know, you can see China's already throwing parties. I know you've got a bit of disturbance in the northern beaches. That's close to some friends of mine, so I'm worried about that with COVID uh, this week. Mm. But I think Australia got on top of it again. Um, so, you know, you've got two parts of the world. In, uh, Australia, what, 25 million people, China, 1.5 billion, pretty much. Mm. Um, that, that, that's going to give you... Uh, uh, you know, foreign buying pressure over and above what we had before coronavirus. So, uh, yeah, and the government's yes. doing all the kind of bump up the prices. Yeah. So, Steve, you have a fairly good handle on the the behaviour of well, who I call the bad boys of Beijing uh, and what they're doing with trade and all that sort of stuff. 
how serious do you think this is going to be or do you think it's going to be something that's it's like a, a warning to the Australian government, you know, give us a better shake or else we could turn this into something very serious? I think in, like in terms of overall industrial policy, Australia's been suicidal for the last 30 years. Mm. We've gone totally from that. We've scrapped manufacturing. We've gone totally for, you know, what uh, Llewellyn uh, Smith calls houses and holes. Um, you know, the money's got money out of the mining and, and put it into higher house prices. We have a manufacturing sector slightly less advanced than Senegal. Um, so we're massively dependent upon those mineral exports and we don't have uh, any, any fallback. Uh, now, China, uh, I, I think what we're really going to face is ecological more than economic for the next decade. And coal is probably going to be eliminated uh, as, as an energy source in the next decade, whether we want it to be or not. So China's got enormous leverage over us. And we don't have the we don't have the basis to rebuild the manufacturing sector, so I think uh, you know Australia has to pull its head out of its proverbial yes. uh, and focus upon getting its industrial sector back up again. And that's going to be a long, slow slog, not the sort of thing you can invade with the with the first a first manufacturer buyers grant, which is what you know mm. the, the sort of short and, and sweet stuff they've pulled on housing doesn't work for manufacturing. Yeah. And that's the major problem for Australia over the long term. Uh, and also, Australia's going to have a, a higher Aussie dollar. What's your prediction for the Aussie dollar? Uh, again, I think it's going to be, well, the Chinese squeeze could be dangerous, but of course, as some people have pointed out, uh, because uh, the, the impact has actually been to increase the price of iron ore while they're yeah. reducing the amount that's being sold. And we do, we're lucky, again, uh, to have the highest, pretty much the highest grade iron ore on the planet and still the highest grade coal. Coal's going to die, steel will not. So, um, you know, those, those sort of things will, will twist the dollar around. But it, again, because we've been successful in fighting the virus, uh, and again, that's the state premiers that deserve the, the respect there, uh, rather, than the, rather than the national government, that may well continue boosting the Australian dollar compared to you know, the Europe and America, which are still basket cases and won't recover for at least a year. Mm or more until there's a full rollout of the, the vaccines. Okay, l let's go back to the, the housing sector. And um, very recently, very recently, uh, my colleague Paul Rickard uh, was dining with the Reserve Bank Governor, which you'd be interested to hear. <laughs> Doctor, yeah, yeah, Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil, yeah. No, no, the, the, the Gov. And, uh, and he, and, and it seems like he is very committed to keeping the cash rate at 0.1%. Now, given what you think is going to happen to the Australian economy over the next two or three years, I know I've written that I think he'll find it very hard to keep it at 0.1% because I think we will get big growth. We will start seeing inflation probably within two, at least two years. And that's when he's going to have to maybe break that promise. But what do you think? Because it's important... Hmm? We're still facing deflation. Hmm. Um, and in turn, if, if, it, if it wasn't for the ecological issues, I think deflation is a permanent state of the global economy, given the levels of private debt. That's something that's mostly my focus. We have far too much private debt, far too little government money creation. Uh, that means people hmm. are conservative about how much they spend, which means the turnover of money is low, which means you get a stagnant economy. And that's been the trend for the last 40, 50 years. Um, so, uh, is that more is that more globally, Steve, Steve rather yes. than Australia? Because in Australia, Absolutely. we are a little bit outside the 
the, the global square, aren't we? Because we are spending, and of course we've been lucky, we've had a mining boom and we've had pretty good growth compared to the, to the rest of the world. You know, as you know, avoiding a, a recession for, for 30 years. Uh, all those sorts of things have meant we've been a little bit different. But I want you to focus on what your crystal ball is saying about the growth of Australia, the course of interest rates, then ultimately what happens to house prices. Okay, well, our growth, and be uh, right too. <laughs> our growth, um, growth, I think, is we, we're going to have to go from growth to degrowth. I mean, my focus these days is predominantly what we're doing to the planet through mm. the excessive load human civilization is putting on the biosphere. And uh, I think economics is out the window in, in the next decade in terms of, you know, focusing upon GDP, wages, blah, blah, blah. It's what the climate will force us to do to recover. And, you know, you know you, you know, he believe had some pretty impressive storms a couple of days ago. Hmm. Um, that sort of volatility is going to go through the roof in the next decade, and that will force us to respond by going for degrowth. And in that situation, the most successful economies were those with the most diversified industrial structure and capacity to produce what they need for themselves, and Australia hasn't got that. Yeah. So I see that being the main constraint, not for the next two years necessarily, but certainly the next decade. Yeah, and so, but but in terms of the next two or three years, you, you've you've predicted house price growth in 2021 in Australia. Um, I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then so is the is the Armageddon for house prices going to be when degrowth takes over? I think so because I mean we're pushed. Uh, we we can push house prices up. So long as the government's willing to throw money at the housing sector, which of course it's been doing, mm. and it encourages people to continue taking out housing credit, which they're doing as well. Uh, now we've reached a level where the second most indebted house in household terms on the planet, after the Swiss, and the Swiss numbers uh, involve a bit of fancy, fancy Swiss cheese and hiding other people's debt. So I really think we're in number one position on the globe. Uh, but we're going to continue borrowing, and that will continue pumping up the housing sector and pumping up the economy. Yeah. Uh, and that can, that can go for a couple of years, but what it means is we have inflated houses and no manufacturing sector to base it on. Okay, so, but, yeah. but, but if, if you, let's go back to conventional economics rather than the, the new age economics that you, you're embracing now, and I understand why you might be doing it. But in, in conventional economics, if, if we, for example, create, because of excessive stimulus and unbelievably low interest rates, if we create solid, unbelievable growth, 21, 22, old-fashioned economics that you and I were both trained and taught once upon a time would have been... Undermined it, but that's yeah, another story. Yeah, but we, we would have seen big growth, inflation, rising interest rates. And if interest rates rise when people have been borrowing at low interest rates, that would have been a trigger for a house price uh, fall. If you're talking your story of degrowth, well, in interest rates aren't going to rise in that kind of context, and therefore maybe house prices will just stabilise at high levels. They can stabilise uh, at, at high levels. That's what the government wants to achieve. Yeah. But you've got to support them with income ultimately in that situation. Mm. I think that's we're, we're going to see a huge gap between the, the debt servicing and the income, and that's what's going to force interest rates to remain at rock bottom levels. Yeah, and but, but if we also spice in what you're saying, that the, the, like the moment. We're going, to, we're going to miss, the Reserve Bank governor thinks we're going to miss the population growth that had driven house prices 
And, he, and if he thought that population growth was going to be as strong as it had been, say, two or three years ago, then he said he would be worried about house price uh, going through the roof, in, in excessive inflation. But do you think Australia will see population growth again, that government may encourage it because it helps the whole story that you're talking about? Oh, you'll get some immigration from China, mm. uh, but in terms of European immigration and, uh, and American, you can write that off for the next two years until the vaccines are successful. Mm. And the Airbnb, the, the, the tourism money that keeps the, the people being able to service the debts, that's going to be out the window, uh, at least, for, again, except for Chinese trade and for the next two years. So, mm. uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of elements that people take for granted aren't, aren't there anymore, but the okay. government's support is. Okay. So, so the, my summary of this interview with you is you're scaring me less than you have in the past. <laughs> um, that the we haven't talked about climate change yet. Yeah, no, no, we'll, we'll give you a separate uh, uh, run on that. Um, uh, and we'll do that from a point of view of uh, what, what does all this climate change threat do in terms of what companies should, should we invest in? But that's going to be for another day. Um, but... So, but you are not really worrying about a house price Armageddon for the housing sector over the next couple of years. Is that fair? Is oh, that... No, no, no. I mean, we'll, we'll keep the prices artificially inflated for at least the next two years. All right, mate. Well, I won't pest you anymore. Go back to your delightful life in Thailand, and we will catch up in the new year around uh, the alternative economic scenarios you're seeing for the world in Australia. Thanks for joining me. Welcome, mate. Okay. Hi, I'm Peter Switzer, founder of The Switzer Report. And if you're looking to build your wealth, My Switzer Report has everything you need. And so I'm inviting you to come and invest in stocks with me. At The Switzer Report, we provide you with expert guidance and actionable advice for managing and growing your wealth from some of the brightest stock pickers and investing minds in the country. And so I've got some great news. For the next two months, we have a fantastic Christmas and New Year offer that I would like to tell you about. If you take up a Switzer Report subscription across the months of December and January, not only will you get all the usual inclusions to the report, but you also will get the following. Exclusive one-off webinar with myself and Paul Rickard, where we will show you the hot stocks we picked in 2020, and we'll also give you the stocks we are picking for 2021 you'll receive a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club, valued at $24.95. And you'll also receive a free ebook with our best investment ideas for 2021. Sign up today and receive three newsletters each week delivered direct to your inbox on Mondays, Thursdays and Saturdays with analysis from our experts, including myself, Paul Rickard, Tony Featherston and James Dunn and others such as Julia Lee, June Bay Lou and Rudy Philippek Van Dyke. Your questions can be answered in the Q&A forum where you can submit an investing question and receive a guaranteed response from Paul Rickard. Monthly webinars with myself and Paul Rickard and special guests who will answer your questions live. You receive complimentary tickets to our events for you and a guest, including our annual Switzer Income Conference, the Switzer Investment Strategy Day, the Switzer Listed Investment Conference and the Switzer Small and Microcap Investor Day. You'll also have access to our weekly Boom Doom Zoom interactive TV webinar, which are stock assessing sessions between Paul, myself and subscribers. You'll be able to view our income and growth model portfolios designed and updated each month by Paul Rickard 
and you can browse the archives containing thousands of archives and resources about specific shares, the markets, SMSFs and more. Information and insights from people who live and brew stocks 24-7 increases your chances of making some real money on the market. I really want to share with you all the insights I get access to that most investors are never lucky enough to see or hear. Come invest with me using my Switzer Report. Follow the link in the description of this episode or visit www.switzerreport.com.au to sign up for your Christmas New Year offer and join me on the journey of financial knowledge and wealth where I will be able to call you one of my valued Switzer Report subscribers. Well, there's a lot of people out there speculating on what will happen to house prices in 2021. Uh, an economist at AMP Capital, Diana Messina, is particularly interested in it, among the other things that she looks at. So it's great to catch up with Diana. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Peter, as always. Okay. So what are you seeing uh, about the property sector right now before we start talking about speculating and forecasting? Look, I think I've been quite surprised to the upside about how resilient the property market's been this year over the COVID pandemic. If you kind of took things from a macro perspective, you probably would have thought that the big fall in employment probably would have generated larger losses in the property market. But really, the only two capital cities that had big falls were Sydney and Melbourne. Sydney prices fell by about 3% from peak to trough during covid now they're rising again. Melbourne has had a bigger fall, about 6%. But again, prices are starting to rise there as well. And across the other capital cities, other regions have been much more resilient. In some places, prices didn't even fall at all, like in Canberra. And in regional areas, uh, prices didn't fall either. They just kept on rising. So there's definitely been this shift towards areas away from Sydney and Melbourne towards other capital cities. And of course, the government support programs have helped to prop up property prices. Yeah, and you'd have to say interest rates as well. Because uh, 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 in, in, in a sense, as, as an economist back in March, trying to work out how bad this is going to be, there were so many variables that you didn't mm. know about. And, um, and that's why I'm, I'm finding excuses for you. And, <laughs> Fortunately, not for me, but people always accuse me of being excessively optimistic. So I've got lucky in, in this one. But I, I never expected the Reserve Bank to go to point one, though you guys did, didn't you? Well, we had actually been expecting, even before COVID, that the Reserve Bank oh. would have to do some sort of QE program. And that was even before we obviously had the health crisis. And that was really just around the fact that Australia was kind of in this sluggish form of growth and that the RBA would be competing with the other central banks in terms of trying to increase its balance sheet so you'd get this upward pressure on the currency. And I guess COVID has exacerbated some of these impacts. Yeah. Uh, but the RBA is also kind of strong in terms of how much it can do because when you're in a health crisis, impacts from the central bank aren't as uh, positive or don't drive as much growth as government spending. And I guess that that's what we've seen this year. Yeah, and I guess early in March, uh, we didn't know how much the government was prepared to spend and they progressively upped their ante, which of course mm -hmm. has uh, resulted in a, in a much stronger rebound. And I don't think there was an economist in the country thinking that the September quarter would be 3.3%. 3 
not with the lockdown in Victoria. I mean, at some stage, we were even talking about potentially a small negative in the September quarter or even a flat outcome. So even though Victoria dragged about 2% or so from, from from that September quarter growth number, it obviously still looked extremely strong. I think in hindsight, maybe we'll see that developed countries around the world, including Australia, might have actually overstimulated, but that's not necessarily a bad thing when you're in the middle of a health crisis. It's just that obviously there's been this huge build-up build up in, in consumer savings around the developed world, which is good for the next few months if you need to draw down on those savings. But I do think maybe there is some case that they've overstimulated the economy for now. Yeah, here, here. I'm glad they did too. Now, uh, let, let's talk about the, the savings ratio. Like it, it got as high as, what, 20%, didn't it? Yeah, it peaked at about 20%, come down to about 18% in the September quarter. Before COVID, it was 5 or 6%. So it's yeah. a huge increase. Yeah. So, But can, can we actually try and disaggregate the causes for it? Because on one level, you would have had some people panicking about their future, therefore they spent less and the saving went up. But also, is it true to say because a lot of services you couldn't spend on, you were stuck with just buying stuff. And so I would have thought like, like in Melbourne, hairdressing services were, were um, put, put out the pasture while they locked down. Forget massaging or all that sort of stuff. So a lot of services weren't spent on. And so it became, in a sense, accidental saving for some people. Is mm. that right? It's a part of that. The majority of the reason for the build-up in savings, though, has been this big windfall in consumer incomes, which seems strange when employment growth fell by as much as it did and the unemployment rate's still pretty high at 7%. But the income windfall has come from all the stimulus that the government's done, not just JobKeeper and JobSeeker, the early access to superannuation, the free childcare, mortgage deferrals, the interest rate cuts as well, if you include all these things. These all of these policies have generated this big increase in transfers from the government. I also forgot to mention the welfare payments um, to middle-income households and to low-income households and tax cuts, of course. And, and then you also have the, 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 the benefit of people not being able to spend, so they've obviously built up these savings just because they couldn't get out and about and spend okay. as much as they usually have. But the retail sales numbers are extremely strong so people still clearly are spending they've just had all they've just had an income windfall that they can use towards their savings yeah and and also look look at you rather than being in a stuffy old amp capital office there you are in your home office now you're probably saving a lot of money in terms of less uh, lunches bought from takeaway destinations um you're uh, or you're not paying for your commuting from your home to AMP. These are all savings as well, uh, which ultimately you know, makes it difficult for you to spend. They are, but at the same time, if you go down to the local cafes around Maroubra where I live or some other suburban areas, they always look really packed to me. So there's definitely been some sort of substitution towards from spending in you know, inner city or city CBD areas towards more of the suburban areas. Yeah. I guess that that's why the New South Wales government is trying to push people in New South Wales to get back to work because they want to see the CBD keep and happening again. Yep, um, certainly CBD economies have suffered at the, at the expense of suburban economies. 
And I can never remember talking to an economist like you about those two economies. <laughs> <laughs> Ever. All right, let's, let's go into the speculation now. So uh, we, we kind of understand what's going on right now. Um, today, uh, you know, my EFO comes out and the treasurer mm -hmm. tells you how, how well the economy is going. But in a sense, he's guessing as well, isn't he? Because Treasury doesn't really fully know what the economy is doing right now and what it might do in the future because it's just such a strange economic environment to be, to be doing predicting. It's extremely difficult and today's numbers are likely to show that actually the budget forecast, the budget deficit projections probably looked too pessimistic. Uh, this is a trend that we've seen over the past few months consistently revising up the outlook for Australia, which is good news. And of course, the impacts from the iron ore price, which is you know about about $150 a tonne in US dollar terms, even a little bit higher than that. Treasury was forecasting it to be at about 55 US dollars by the middle of next year. So they've obviously had a big windfall from the commodity sector, but they can't bank on that or they can't rely on that because, well, the iron ore price will just do whatever it wants to do. So that's the difficulty in forecasting it. Mm. But in terms of... AMP Capital's projections for growth in 2021. Have you guys upgraded that? We have upgraded our projections. We think that in the December quarter for Australia, we'll get another strong increase, probably close to that 3% level that we had in September, uh, because you'll get that rebound in Victoria that's mm. come through. And you've also obviously got the increase in mobility across the other states, our COVID tracker that we put together, which looks at high frequency activity data, so things like credit card spending, job advertisements that come out on a weekly basis, mobility, it's actually back to flat compared to pre-COVID levels, which is great to see. You know, at the peak of COVID in March and April, it fell by about 60% on year ago terms. And compared to other countries, it's also the most advanced other countries are still well down on pre-COVID levels. So growth in 2021 in Australia, I think should be pretty solid. And I think that that should be positive for Australian assets as well when you're thinking about things like equity markets compared to the rest of the world. Yeah. So let's go to property prices. Oh, by the way, I should say I love that economic tracker activity um, chart because uh, when people were talking about a V-shaped recovery, I said, possibly it'll be a Nike swoosh-like recovery. And it's looking like that when you look at that chart. Yeah. If a problem was in Victoria, it'd be more V-shaped, but certainly yeah, because of Victoria, it's more swoosh-shaped. Um, and that's the first time I've ever used that term before as well. Um, but let's talk about property prices. What are you guys thinking might be the pro property price outcome with this improving economy? Yeah, we think over the next 12 months, property prices can rise by 5% or so. A few months ago, we were thinking that they would still fall by 5%. So it's definitely been a big upgrade in our expectations. I think it's difficult now to see a large fall in prices when you have borders domestically opening up, uh, when you have mobility improving. You know, hopefully, the New South Wales cases that we had yesterday uh, can be brought under control so we don't get another big big outbreak, assuming that we don't. I think that mobility will generally rise, which is good for property prices. There are still some risks in terms of when JobKeeper finishes and if there are going to be more job losses that come through from that. 
we think that the unemployment rate probably has peaked at about 7.5%, but it will probably stay at this 7 to 7.5% level for a few more months. So not extremely strong growth in property prices, but I think 3 to 5% over the next 12 months is quite reasonable. Okay. Last question, because a lot of this growth has been helped along by unbelievably low interest rates. You know, mm -hmm. you've got four-year fixed rates at 1.99% if you ignore the comparison rate, but still that's the, that's the number that's getting people really, really excited. So I say to you then, is it possible that the Reserve Bank Governor might have to break his, inverted commas, promise that interest rates will stay where they are for three years? Well, I mean, the RBA knows as little as anyone else really, I suppose. They're forecasting into their um, crystal ball. So even though they want to keep downward pressure on interest rates by saying we don't think we're going to raise the cash rate for three years so we're really talking about 2023 or later hmm. if the economy rebounds faster than expected then they'll have to drop that rhetoric maybe they'll drop their three-year target yield i don't think this is going to happen next year though i mean maybe they'll start talking about a better recovery or a stronger recovery but you really need to see a large chunk of the population vaccinated first to get that inbound migration back, to get tourists back here into Australia. Until you see all of that, I think the RBA will keep talking about you know, this long recovery yeah. and keeping interest rates very low. Yeah, me too. I, I think that they'll at least be in, in it for a year and a half to two, but if this economic activity remains strong, you and I both know inflation will start kicking up and the Reserve mm. Bank will react to that. And I know Phil Lowe would prefer not to break his inverted commas promise, but he'd have to do it if inflation gets too strong. And also, isn't it fair to say that the, the bond market could actually make it basically compulsory from the fallout? I mean, it could do. The, what's interesting about this environment now is that the, the RBA has effectively capped the three-year yield on okay. government bonds. Um, and I suppose it could do that to the 10-year bond as well if it really wanted to put a cap on it by doing a yield control on that. It could, yeah. which is what um, the, the Bank of Japan is doing at the moment. I mean, they've obviously opted to go down a path of asset purchases, but yeah. if they really wanted to put a target on it, then they could do that and just remove the asset purchase program. I think that that's also still a risk yeah. that could happen next year. Personally, I hope that we never follow Japan's monetary policy because it it really hasn't worked well for 20-odd years. And uh, I, I was once over in uh, Tokyo and, and was given a meeting with the deputy governor of the um, Bank of Japan. And it was about 20 years ago, and he was actually asking me what I thought might happen to the Japanese economy. And I confidently predicted that they would eventually come out of this, and I was so wrong. It was one of the, the, yeah. worst, the worst calls of my life. But before that... That 20-year period, Japan was a miracle economy that could make no mistakes, but it certainly has made a lot of mistakes over the past 20 years. I think one of the big problems for them as well is, of course, what happens with their population growth and the fact that they have no migration coming in really puts downward pressure on their, on their growth profile. Yeah, a lot of um, refusal to uh, embrace the new world. Unlike you, Diana Messina, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you.
Joining me now is Pete Wargent, the founder of buyersbuyers.com. And he's a guy who's been very positive on house prices when the last time I talked to him, and it was when things are looking pretty ordinary. And he's now thinking that 2021 could see house prices rising by, wait for it, 25%. Pete, where do you get this number from? No, I think um, no, I think what we'll see in 2021, we may well see double-digit price gains. Uh, our forecast was actually for transaction numbers to rise 25%. Um, this year in 2020, obviously there was a big hole in the middle of the year in transactions happening, and uh, albeit the year isn't finished yet, but we'll probably see this year, probably in the established housing market, only in the low 400,000s, the transactions, which is abnormally low. I think uh, next year with investors coming back and with the economy reopening, we'll probably see a 25% up, uplift in transactions. I think um, in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, potentially Perth, we may well see double digit price gains as well, uh, just the sheer number of buyers in the market. Um, but obviously the one big unknown is uh, the international borders. Okay, so it's not prices, it's the amount of transactions which you think will translate into double-digit gains. Um, Pete, what, what is the, the status of the supply of properties right now? And are you thinking, because it's been a, a long-term problem, there haven't been many properties, particularly I think in Sydney and Melbourne there's been shortages, are you thinking that the price rises and maybe this idea that people are happy to move out and maybe have a hybrid style of working, three days at home, two days in the office, will mean that there will be a, 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 maybe a supply of properties in the inner circle of CBDs? Uh, yeah, well, it's already happened to some degree. Um, there's an awful lot of empty apartments um, Certainly in some parts of Sydney, and I assume Melbourne, the same, for obvious reasons, haven't been to Melbourne this year, uh, or not since January. But um, certainly around um, the centre of Sydney, around the universities, a lot of students haven't returned. Uh, there's no international tourism. And it's really just a numbers game. If you look at um, the demographics of Australia, typically new migrants go to Sydney and Melbourne first and foremost, and those markets, big hole knocked in immigration this year. So... Um, but a lot of empty units uh, on the rental market, not so much actually for sale. Mm. Does that surprise you? Because if I, if I was an investor and I, I would at least test the market to see what kind of interest there might be from... Because I, I, even though I can see um, husbands and wives with children thinking, yeah, working home three days a week, go to work twice, can help out with the kids, can do all that sort of stuff. I can get that. But the, the 20 and 30-year-olds who are you know, in that, into their groovy, social, urban life, they might be thinking, these, are, these investor apartments might be, might be a lot cheaper if these guys put it on the market. And you know, I'm, I'm happy to live in the city. I'm not worried about the city. Is, is that a reasonable piece of analysis about the people who participate in the property market? Yeah, so I mean, just like we saw in the in the previous downturn or the previous significant downturn, this time around there's the first home loan deposit scheme. Uh, last time it was the Rudd stimulus and the first home buyers grant. 
Uh, so that's brought an awful lot of first time buyers into the market. So that's helped to absorb the supply. Interestingly, the missing link really this year has been investors. Um, if you look back to 2015, uh, we were seeing $10 billion a month of investment lending. At the moment, it's probably about five. So um, that's where there's been a big gap. And that's where the pent up demand is potentially for next year. At the moment, it's all been about first time buyers. And a lot of people um, unable to go on holiday this year have just looked at um, upgrading their property as well. Um, but yeah, for sure, and rents will have to fall in Sydney and Melbourne in some of those unit markets. You just have to look at the, the sheer number of vacancies, uh, landlords reach a tolerance limit, and eventually, you know, uh, rents will start to drop 10, 20%. And look at an area like Ride, there's just dozens and dozens of units for rent. Mm. And I'm thinking to myself, what's my time you will say, well, a lot of first home buyers couldn't afford apartments in the city, even one betters. But with interest rates so low, it really does make it affordable for first home buyers to think about living in the city. Yeah, I mean, the big issue over the past 10 years or so has been the deposit gap. Um, but obviously, the government has stepped in. Um, so now, a lot of first-time buyers getting in with 5% deposits. Uh, in some cases, um, stamp duty exemptions as well, depending on where you are in the country. So uh, that's really helped to bring a lot more first-time buyers into the market. In fact, first-time buyer numbers are now the highest um, since, the, since the RUD stimulus uh, 10 or 11 years ago. Mm. And... and, and- Putting it all together then, are you expecting the investors to make a comeback to the market in the conventional markets where you saw them before? Or do you think they're going to play a waiting game? Because I would have thought a lot of potential renters are actually buying properties. Yeah, there's a bit of that. But um, I think the thing that is, uh, and we're seeing it already in the inquiry numbers, the thing that's bringing investors back is um, the potential for positive gearing. So uh, mortgage rates have fallen by a full percentage point since mid-2019. And even in interest-only le- uh, lending now, um, loans are about 3.1% on average. So uh, even if you're only getting a 3 or 4% yield, you're either positively geared or pretty close to it from yeah. day one. Yeah. And with cash in the bank, obviously not paying uh, much in the way of returns, that's just bringing investors back. I think, though, you're right, there will be a bit of a change in attitude um, there's been a big bit of a shift away from the high-rise apartments. There's far fewer Chinese investors around at the moment, certainly compared to the previous cycle. And self-managed super fund lending was a big part of the new apartment boom last time around, and that's yeah. just very rare now by comparison. So I think a lot more will be focused on the established housing market, and probably there's just a bit of caution around some of those debt high density blocks um, and there's been a few high profile uh, construction issues as yeah. well which might just be a off. And interesting that they've seemed to be mainly in Sydney. Uh, in other cities are they having the same kinds of structural problems? Uh, not not in the, in the same numbers. I think, uh, I mean Sydney, I suppose just statistically, they shared size of the uplift in, in construction through, uh, from 2012 onwards, uh, largely driven by offshore um, offshore buyers in mainland China. Um, I guess just the, just the numbers game, there were so many units went up so quickly, uh, especially in some of those markets around the airport, uh, towards Olympic Park in Parramatta and 
I guess uh, you put up so many buildings so quickly, uh, there's always a risk of uh, sort of under delivery. Okay, now Pete, just explain to my viewers what buyersbuyers.com does and therefore what insights do you think you get a particular competitive advantage with? Yeah, so we, um, we're the only national marketplace for um, affordable buyers agent services. So uh, traditionally in Australia, the buyers agency services have uh, really only focused on the higher income earning cohorts, uh, so largely the more affluent buyers. Um, but we, um, we offer affordable buyers agent services all around the country in every state and territory. Uh, so we see a, a broader range potentially of buyers than most people do in the market. Um, and we also, we don't only cater for investors, we help first time buyers in particular um, by focusing on the parts of the search that people really need help with in terms of due diligence, price negotiation, terms negotiation, and just stepping people through all of the different phases in the purchase process. Um, and for, for sure, one thing we've seen this year is a lot of first time buyers who've just been sitting on the sidelines for a few years this year, well, with all of the stimulus being pushed their way, it's now cheaper to buy than rent in many cases. And that's just tilted the balance in favour of first time buyers this year. Yeah. And so is it all done online or is there a, a, a point in which there's an interface between a real buyer's agent and a, a buyer? No, we use uh, real buyer's agents on the ground. So we have a national panel of hand-picked buyer's agents. So. Um, for example, somebody wants to buy in Melbourne or original Victoria, we have local agents who can help out. Uh, for our entry level uh, flagship products, uh, we just focus on the transaction itself rather than providing a full search. Uh, if people want the traditional full end-to-end -end service, we can do that as well. So we have a range of products and prices to suit all buyers. And um, yeah, for one of the things we've seen this year is first home buyers um, they've been thrilled to be able to get uh, professional assistance but not have to pay a premium price uh, to have somebody help them through the process. So we're just helping to level the playing field for all home buyers, including people at the lower end of the market. Yeah, it's funny, you know, everyone tries to put labels on the, the younger generations, but what, one label I think it really sticks is that they're really economical. They really search for, for value. And so... That uh, a company like yours is well positioned for that kind of demographic change. Yeah, and we like to um, try and position it as a, at least a cost neutral product, because if we're doing our job properly, we should save people uh, time, cost and stress. And uh, with our buyers agents being in the market every day, um, they should do a lot better on a price negotiation than somebody who only does these things, you know, once or twice in a decade. Mm. I mean, I think back to when I bought uh, my first unit, uh, sadly, many years ago in Bondi. And I, you know, I sort of ostensibly knew what I was doing, but I look back at uh, my inexperience and all of the different mistakes that I made. Um, and it's, it's simply because you're not doing that sort of thing every day that you, you overlook some parts of the due diligence. You don't necessarily know where to look for comparable sales or uh, off-market purchases. There's a lot of stuff you just don't know if you're not in the market regularly. Yeah, but that said, Peter... You know, you being a typical Englishman, ending up in bon <laughs> ending up in Bondi, buying a Every unit. Yeah, that's right. Buying a unit in Bondi. If you hung on to it, you, you would have done pretty well real estate value wise. 
Yeah, in fact, I never sold uh, my unit there, so it's it's done pretty well over yeah. the years. Um, yeah, typically, um, the apartments that have done best in Australia have tended to be in the more mature housing markets, um, where apartment living is more common. I think if you go out to some of the regional markets or some of the the secondary capital cities, the performance has been uh, somewhat underwhelming because the favoured product in those markets tends to be um, a detached house. Yeah, without a doubt. Pete, thanks for joining us. Hope you're right. And I think a lot of people who own a house hope you're right. I guess people who want to buy a house hope you're wrong. But thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks, Peter.